Hello everybody, Stephen Gray here, doing one of my occasional irregular, whoops, books dropped, that's a good way to start, Stephen, give me a second. Uh, interviews with leading influ influencers in um, uh, fields related to psychedelics and spiritual uh, awakening, consciousness transformation, and so on. And before I get into this interview that I've actually been really looking forward to for quite some time now, I've been reading this gentleman's book for almost two months, and I'm super impressed with it. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to mention, because I rarely do, the book that I'm the editor of with 25 contributors on this theme of how psychedelics can help save the world. Uh, kind of a bold proclamation, but it's a, the important thing there is that can help, not that psychedelics are going to be the, the the prime modality for the healing on the planet, but they can have a very important role to play. And um, that's what the people in this book have been speaking, are speaking about. So um, please look it up. It's available in all, in all online and um, bricks and mortar uh, venues, uh, retailers, etc., etc. Okay, so um, now or on... Or Julie Holland, that's fantastic. I beg your pardon? Forward to oh. your book is by Julie Holland. She's spectacular. Oh, oh yeah, I love her. Um, yeah, I've I've had a few things to deal with or dealings with her in the past, and and um, you know we have some leading influencers like Dennis McKenna, Wade Davis, Jamie Wheel, and um, lots of uh, indigenous representation, BIPOC representation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, anyway, enough about my book because this this is meant to be about your book, Peter. So Peter uh, Grinspoon is. Uh, uh, is an MD. He's a primary uh, care physician, cannabis specialist, and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's the author of the new book, um, Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Expert Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon is a TEDx speaker, a national media figure, and the author of the groundbreaking memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. He's a board member of the Physician Advocacy Group, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Um, that's the official version of the bio. The, the, the more informal um, version is that, in my humble opinion, Mr. Dr. Grinspoon is um, beyond qualified to write this book. And it's, I think, um, an important book. Uh, if it gets the readership that it deserves, I certainly hope it does, and I suspect it will. This book is going to be a significant influence on the culture. There's no doubt about that in my mind. It, uh, I'm, I'm not a person who is prone to hyperbole, but I really do consider this a remarkable book. The research is impeccable. The attitude is um, more than fair, <laughs> um, and the uh, so that the the title and subtitle of the book are the um, epitome of uh, honesty in advertising. The book is titled Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. And this is exactly what this book delivers. If the, if the right people, re well, anyone can, be, anyone, anyone who has any interest whatsoever in cannabis would benefit from this book, including the consumers. But if the politicians, the influencers, the medical establishment, the researchers, the, um, the cannabis dispensary owners and growers and bud tenders, if those people read that, this book, this will change the attitude in the culture. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. 
Okay, so let's just get right into it. Um, uh, you spend a fair amount of time early in the book, um, uh, quite powerfully, in my opinion. I've been aware of, you know, some of the history. I've read some other books on can the history of cannabis uh, illegalization, etc. But you you really nail hard on some of that stuff. Um, so, uh, could you sum up briefly why you would say it's been so difficult to get the recognition that cannabis deserves as a medicine? Well, uh, cannabis. Um... I mean, a lot of it honestly has to do with the war on drugs. Uh, cannabis was um, a, a fairly widely prescribed and accepted medication in the United States in the 1800s and early 1900s until it became criminalized in 1937. Um, one of the leading groups opposed to criminalization was the American Medical Association, which is very interesting to me. Um, since then, under pressure from the drug war, the doctors have really been on the wrong side of the war on drugs. They've been sort of forced frog marched by the government to, to adopt this very strong anti-cannabis line, particularly um, around the, you know, the early 1970s with uh, Richard Nixon and his gearing up his uh, war on drugs. Um, most of the research that's been supported on cannabis has been um, really focused on finding harms with cannabis. And any research into benefits was either not funded or the researchers finding benefits weren't funded either. So the U.S. government uh, is a big culprit in all this. They've had a big finger on the scale, uh, really trying to distort uh, the perception of cannabis because uh, they needed it as part of their war on drugs. They, they couldn't really run a war on drugs just on cocaine and heroin. They needed to include cannabis. So, you know, they didn't include alcohol because they all use alcohol, but they cannabis was a low-hanging fruit for them. So we haven't been told the truth about cannabis, and the research has really been spiked against it. Things are getting better recently in the last 10 or 20 years. Things are opening up. The, the research is a little bit more independent. Um, but there's been a long, sordid history of sort of spike science and also a persecution of, of cannabis users. It's really awful. Nice. Yeah, well, it's quite outrageous. <laughs> and you bring that up a bunch in the book. Um, so um, I'm assuming that a lot of the people who are going to watch this particular interview or listen to it, uh, it'll also be available on Spotify and related podcasts and so on, um, are not, you know, if they're from the psychedelic community, a lot of those people are not particularly tuned into um, the scientific method, etc. And, um, and may not be all that, I don't know, simpatico or understanding even of why research is really important on this, because that's what you've done a lot in this book is you've looked into you know what's the basis of the of the any particular study you know how how reliable is it what kind of biases are involved and so on so can you just give a quick summary as to what is a properly designed study and why is that important for understanding as you put it in the title of the book the truth about cannabis well you know without research without science without data anybody can claim anything uh patients that come in you know with these weird uh, bruises and i'm I would ask them, what's the bruises from? And they're like, oh, I use Russian magnets to help treat my cancer. And, you know, there needs to be evidence that treatments work or don't work so that doctors and patients can have discussions and make informed decisions. You could only make an informed decision if you have good knowledge upon which to base your decision. So we need research, both on harms and benefits. They're both critically important. Uh, the people who are against cannabis have been very closed off to any research on harms and they on benefits and they just reject it and um the people who are in favor enthusiastic about using cannabis 
really can reflexively dismiss any studies that come out about harms. And we all should be equally interested in harms and benefits. And we need to research this stuff in a neutral, honest, open fashion, free of any of any influence. We don't want the tobacco, alcohol, or cannabis industry influencing the research. We don't want um, you know, the prohibitionists influencing the research, as, as has been the case for the last half a century. We just need neutral research that we could all know what helps, what doesn't help, what's a harm, what's a benefit. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we could maximize benefits and minimize harms for patients. Well, you know, you've pretty much answered my next two questions anyway. Um, and I'm so I'm glad you uh, brought that up because uh, you actually used a term. In fact, I think you devoted a chapter to each one of the two sides of what you just mentioned. You called the one group the uh, reefer pessimists and the other group the canatopians. Um, so I, I don't think I need to ask you more about that because you just explained, you know, why that's a problem. Um, <clears throat> but maybe you can elaborate slightly on this one, which you also more or less just addressed, but nonetheless, um, I'm, this is a direct quote from the book um, uh, as a problem. Confirmation bias, publication bias, quote, fishing bias, and cultural and financial pressure to find negative things about weed. Well, you already said that, but could you just clarify a little bit about <clears throat> what um, confirmation bias and publication bias and fishing bias in particular uh, imply? Absolutely. Uh, publication bias is just simply that um, positive results uh, get get published and then end up in the newspaper and end up in the public discourse, and negative findings don't. Much more interesting, a study that shows cannabis causes IQ drop than a study that shows cannabis doesn't cause IQ drop. So there's a bias because all of these negative studies, and the same is true with positive studies, much more interesting, a study that shows cannabis helps with pain than then a study that shows cannabis doesn't help with pain. So the positive findings, both pro and anti, are the ones that get in CNN, Fox News, end up on ABC News, and they're the ones that end up in the po public discourse. But in reality, it's equally important uh, what the studies show, whether or not it was a positive or negative effect. So there's this bias where the more extreme views get much more airtime, and that tends to mm. polarize people. Now, confirmation bias is that we tend to confirm as a way to sort of we're overwhelmed by all the uh, thoughts and, and inputs we have to our consciousness. And confirmation bias is a way to weed that out. We tend to, to t pay more attention to things that confirm what we already think or what we already believe. So uh, people that are pro-cannabis pay much more attention to uh, studies that show benefit, and they tend to just... Uh, reject studies about harm is yet another U.S. government propaganda point, when in reality, we all should want to know about harms and benefits. If you're using cannabis, you should be the first person who wants to know about the harms. And uh, people who are against cannabis tend to, um, you know, uh, pay more attention to the studies that confirm their beliefs, which is that cannabis is harmful and doesn't have benefits. So uh, both in terms of what is studied, how the studies are presented, and then how they're reported, uh, confirmation bias, in addition to publication bias, tends to radicalize the two sides, whereas what I'm hoping to accomplish by writing Seeing Through the Smoke is to go over all the data, or as much as I can, there are obviously thousands of studies, and try to bring people a little bit closer together. Beautiful. Um, okay, so let's get into some of the specific 
uh, you know, claims that um, cannabis can or cannot do. And uh, I'm going to do this in a kind of almost a ritualized way. Like I'll say, Peter, what is the truth about this or this or this or this? So let's start with this one. What's the truth about cannabis and psychosis? Um, Cannabis can cause psychosis. It can cause substance-induced psychosis, as can steroids, amphetamines, psychedelics, alcohol, uh, which is a short um, episode of psychosis that you can get just from using a, a substance. But the psychosis can last days to weeks to even months, even though the substance wears off after hours. Uh, cannabis can destabilize people who are, have psychosis, people with schizophrenia or bipolar. It can destabilize them if they're doing well in treatment. And cannabis can trigger schizophrenia earlier in people that are predisposed to develop schizophrenia, which is a big deal. If someone develops schizophrenia at age 21 instead of age 27 because of heavy cannabis use or alcohol or steroids or amphetamines or psychedelics, all of these can trigger uh, schizophrenia earlier. They're ill. And instead of learning adult life skills and learning how to function until age 25 or 26, they are psychotic starting at age 21 and they have a worse outcome. So these are absolute harms of cannabis. At the same time, a longstanding uh, point by the prohibitionists is that cannabis, quote unquote, causes schizophrenia. And that is absolutely false. Cannabis does not cause schizophrenia. The rates of schizophrenia have been stable about 1% of the population over the last 70 years, back from the 1950s, when worldwide, uh, the number of people using cannabis was perhaps 100,000 people. And now about 400 million people use it. And it's absolutely impossible that you'd go from 100,000 users to 400 million users and have the rate of schizophrenia rock solid worldwide at 1% if cannabis was causing schizophrenia. So it can trigger and precipitate psychosis. It can uh, destabilize people with psychosis, but it certainly doesn't cause schizophrenia, which is the most uh, common cause of, of psychosis. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Another one. What's the truth about cannabis and addiction? Or as you, um, the anagram or whatever you call it, um, the initials you use is CUD, cannabis use, dis, um, uh, cannabis use disorder, right? Yeah. Uh, cannabis can definitely be addictive. I treat cannabis use disorder, cannabis addiction. They're used pretty synonymously and uh, it can definitely derail people and, and derail their lives. That said, uh, the rates of cannabis uh, addiction or cannabis use disorder have been wildly exaggerated, mostly by the psychiatric community, um, partially and by the U.S. government. Uh, for many decades, there wasn't a huge separation between the beliefs of the U.S. government and the beliefs of the psychiatric community on cannabis um, and such issues as cannabis addiction, um, which I think is pretty shameful. Uh, hopefully, things are getting a little bit better more recently. Um, so the rates of cannabis addiction have been exaggerated. The way in which they've been exaggerated is that the definition of cannabis use disorder is very, very broad. For example, it includes tolerance and withdrawal. In fact, you only need two of 11 criteria to satisfy the definition of addicted to cannabis or cannabis use disorder, one of which is tolerance and one of which is withdrawal. Now, most medical cannabis patients have tolerance and withdrawal. Um, Most medicinal opiate uh, patients have tolerance and withdrawal. We don't use tolerance and withdrawal in the definition of opiate use disorder because all medicinal uh, users of opiates have tolerance and withdrawal. So why is there a double standard and why do we use that to um, fluff up and exaggerate the rates of cannabis use disorder? What we end up doing is unnecessarily pathologizing a lot of cannabis users and particularly a lot of cannabis 
um, medical cannabis use disorders. Now, when you give someone a definition of addiction, you harm them. They're treated with stigma. They're not treated as well by their doctors or by anybody else for that matter. They're not given pain medication. So it harms people to give them a d- diagnosis of addiction when they don't have an addiction. And I think we overly broadly define cannabis use disorder or cannabis use or cannabis addiction, and we unnecessarily rope in all these medical cannabis patients. But that isn't to say that people don't get addicted to cannabis. People do get addicted to cannabis. It can be really terrible, and it, in, it requires empathy and treatment just like any other addiction does, but it's been exaggerated. So yes, addicted, but no, not as addictive as it's been portrayed as. Mm-hmm. And well, I do want to move along quickly on all these, but uh, just regarding that, um, is not the um, more most important element of cannabis addiction um, psychological? I mean, I, this is not gold, gold standard research, of course, but anyone I've ever known who smoked their brains out for years and quit didn't really have a major problem with that. Maybe they, their sleep patterns changed for a few days. Maybe they were irritable a bit for a few days. But basically, lots of people you know, smoked too much, perhaps, when they were in adolescence and early adulthood, and then you know, got into other things and left it behind and never reported it being a huge problem. So is it really that addictive on the physiological level? Well, I would say that it is actually, it can be quite addictive on the physiological level for people that use it heavily every day. What happens is we have these natural cannabinoid receptors in our brains, uh, part of the endocannabinoid system, which is what the neurotransmitter system, the cannabis sort of bootstraps onto and uses to work its effect. And if you use cannabis heavily every day, your cannabinoid receptors thin out. So then if you abruptly stop using, your natural endocannabinoids have fewer receptors to work on. Therefore, you can definitely experience, about half of users, not all of them, can experience grumpiness, insomnia, poor appetite. It only lasts a week or two, uh, though mm. it can make people very difficult, uh, have a very difficult time staying off the cannabis if mm. they need to stop it for whatever reason they need to stop traveling, they're being drug tested at a new job. It can make it difficult for people to stop cannabis. Now, the quality of this kind of cannabis addiction is not the same as like an opiate addiction, which unfortunately I'm very... Uh, d- d- experience with having been now 15 years in recovery from opiate addiction personally uh nobody's robbing pharmacies nobody's injuring themselves to get cannabis like they can do with opiates it's not like this soul-crushing withdrawal or this life-altering addiction but it certainly can derail people and get them off track so i would say people do get addicted to cannabis it can be quite physically addictive but it only lasts about a week and it's not like life-threatening like the withdrawal from benzodiazepines mm-hmm. and alcohol and it's not like soul crushing like the withdrawal from opiates can be yeah excellent thank you okay moving on what about uh what about the truth um of cannabis regarding pregnancy and breastfeeding well first of all there's been a lot of nonsense there's been a lot of like uh anti-cannabis studies which is what i was alluding to before and during the war on drugs a lot of the harmful studies were fluffed up where they showed harms in cannabis users during pregnancy, yet to the fetus, to the mom, um, yet then you read the limitations study of the section of the study and it says, well, we didn't factor out other drug use, alcohol, cigarettes, or poverty, like all these other things that could harm the mom and the baby. Um, So there's been a lot of these nonsense studies. However, that said, we don't know how safe or dangerous, or even if it's safe at all, cannabis is during pregnancy or breastfeeding for the simple purpose that A, the studies haven't been very good, and B, um, 
it's unethical to study on pregnant women. You can't give a thousand of them cannabis and a thousand of them placebo and say, let's see if you have um, damage to the fetus. That's not an ethical thing for researchers or doctors to do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the um, assessment of how dangerous cannabis and other drugs, for that matter, is during pregnancy is sort of inferential and speculative. That said, as a primary care doctor, I'm very conservative about whatever I give to a pregnant patient. Yeah, very dangerous to give ibuprofen. Uh, many drugs are are dangerous, and many drugs we thought were safe, we were surprised and found that they were dangerous, like thalidomide, or you know, ended up causing these like uh, grotesque abnormalities. Uh, we had no idea when the drug first came out, so we're very cautious with anything during pregnancy. We don't know the cannabis is safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding, so except under very uh, severe circumstances, like a very severe case of hyperemesis gravidarum, nausea and vomiting during pregnancy, uh, where the woman might be in the hospital getting all these intravenous medications. It's hard to argue those are uh, safer than cannabis. Um, But aside from those extreme circumstances, I don't recommend cannabis during pregnancy or breastfeeding just because we don't know that it's safe. That said, if a woman is pregnant or breastfeeding, has very severe pain, a very severe migraine, very severe nausea, very severe depression, she has to take something. So we have to try to discern what is the least toxic thing to provide to her. And in many cases, that might be cannabis. We just need to do better, more neutral and unbiased studies to try to get an inferential sense of how dangerous it really is during pregnancy. Well, this is one of the reasons why I believe um, quite strongly that this book is going to be influential in the culture, because I think people are going to read this book and trust you because you are taking this cautious, balanced approach. You're clearly, uh, in some sense, a can- cannabis advocate. Um, you know, you're well aware that this plant has remarkable capabilities in a number of different medical ways and other ways. Um, but you've made it really clear that you, you know you're not a canatopian. <laughs> and uh, so I think people are going to read this, and and if they read something about you know your cautions around breastfeeding, I think they will likely take you seriously for that reason they're not, they can they will see that you're not pushing an agenda so uh, thank you very much for doing that work um so moving I along like, i feel if i'm being shot at equally by both sides i'm probably doing a pretty good job uh, yeah good <laughs> so how about toking and driving you th- that's your phrase actually toking and driving Right. Well, doctors don't usually recommend smoking. We recommend medicinally people use other, either a dry herb vaporizer or, uh, you know, a, a tincture or something. But in terms of driving cannabis, it is not safe to drive under the influence of cannabis. I don't think it's ethical either. You end up with an increased crash risk. You can kill some family. That said, it is safer than alcohol. Uh, much safer. Cannabis, all things considered, probably about twice as dangerous to drive when you're high and about 14 times is dangerous to drive under the legal limit. So it is not safe or ethical to drive when high, but safer than alcohol, which isn't to say that, you know, therefore it's okay. Cannabis is about as, it also depends on how often you use it. Someone who uses a huge dose once a month will be very impaired, very dangerous to drive. A medicinal patient who takes a small puff twice a day and his tolerance won't uh, be particularly impaired when driving. And, you know, some of the studies, interestingly, compared cannabis to like other medications like opiates, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, antidepressants, antihistamines like Benadryl, it's probably about as dangerous as those medications. Now, we don't want people driving on their prescription medications because uh, that's more dangerous than driving on nothing. Yet at the same time, it doesn't make any sense to have this extra special hyper focus on penalizing cannabis users when these other medications that are so widely used by millions of other people have about the same effect 
on your driving as medicinal cannabis does. And you just have to ask yourself, you really want to be arresting the, um, you know, person who's using a small puff of medical cannabis twice a day and who's driving perfectly fine. Or do you want to focus on the person who's like weaving down the road, regardless of what substance that they're on? Absolutely. And I, and I think, uh, uh, one of the key, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't have to be unbiased here. Um, so I'll say that, uh, you know, I've driven on cannabis, uh, quite a few times in the course of my life. Um, and, um, uh, it, it, it's dose dependent, you know, if, if, if I'm quite high, yeah, that can be a problem, but I'm a skilled driver. I'm a confident driver. And if I focus, you know, if you're distracted, uh, that's a whole other thing that creates a different kind of a problem, but with, with a moderate effect or, um, you know, later, like you've smoked, you know, one or two tokes three hours ago, um, I haven't found it to be a problem, particularly for myself. In some ways I actually focus in more, but anyway, that's not medical advice, well, folks. <laughs> If I could just address that for once, the joke is that like drunk drivers like barrel through the red light and stone drivers sort of gently stop at the green light, neither of which is uh, particularly helpful. But um, the, the things that cannabis can do to your driving is it gives you more lane deviation and it also gives you a delayed response to like things such as uh, the light changing. Mm. Um, and so it, it, it does impair you. But again, it doesn't impair you in particular if you have tolerance and are using a low dose more than many of the other prescription medications that we mm -hmm. use are proactive. And furthermore, a big difference between drunk and stone driving is that people are aware when they're using cannabis that they mm -hmm. might be impaired, whereas you're drunk, you're completely oblivious. So mm -hmm. it's theorized that to a certain extent, you can, um, you can uh, sort of accommodate for some of the deficits by the fact that you're aware of the fact that you have to drive extra carefully exactly as you just described. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Let's get, we're going to get into some of them, you know, more heavier in a sense topics here. Um, so cannabis and cognition in adults, I want to focus on, on adults first before we get into teens at all. And one of the things that I noted in my notes is that um, there are also some indications that improvements in cognition may result from certain kinds of cannabis use. So could you give us the truth about cannabis and the, its effects on cognition in adults, please? Well, it harms some things and improves other things. It doesn't cause any lasting harm in adults. Like one of the things that it does harm is it can help you, it can help interfere, it interferes with your consolidation of short-term memory. So you might smoke and go to a party. You remember you had a good time. You remember who you spoke to, but you might not remember each detail about each conversation. It definitely can impair your consolidation for the short term, but it doesn't have any long-term effects on your memory. So there's no long-term damage. At the same time, cannabis helps people connect with other people, be mindfully uh, inhabit the present moment, appreciate sexuality, spirituality, music, art, make them more creative. Uh, it really, um, in my belief, it can uh, sort of you decide to use some parts of your brain at the expense of other parts of your brain. So it doesn't improve or harm your cognition. It just sort of uh, redistributes what parts of your brain are functioning, functioning um, most optimally. Yeah. Uh, with with other psychedelics, they talk about, are you familiar with this term, the default mode network? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Do, how, I haven't seen anything uh, specific about the parts, like the, in with, uh, for those not familiar with the concept, the default mode network is an area of the brain that is quieted down with other psychedelics sometimes so that the 
other areas of the brain can be activated and that's what often causes these remarkable effects from some of these psychedelics. I have not seen a specific reference to which parts of the brain cannabis quiets down that way, is there? Well, cannabis is, there's so many cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Cannabis does so many different things at once that I don't, uh, I think it sort of defies like a sort of a, a, a schematic paradigm, like less blood flow to the default mode network so that the other parts of the brain communicate better and you have neuroplasticity, like the theory of how psychedelics work. But it's important to remember that cannabis is a psychedelic and does give people insight Um which is really, really important. I think it has tremendous potential in therapy and it really helps people with personal growth. So while it might not be the exact same schema in psychedelics in terms of like how it affects the, the default mode network, it certainly can cause a neuroplasticity, insight, connection, and personal growth and humility and mindfulness. Um, so I think cannabis, like psychedelics, has tremendous untapped potential to help people in therapy and to help them with their personal growth and development. And I think it's real tragic that the psychiatrists for the last 50 years have been so busy carrying water for the war on drugs instead of helping us figure out how cannabis can be exploited to help people in these in these ways that are so integral and important to our growth and development. Yes, hence the skepticism of the canatopians, of course. Um, so how about cannabis in teens? You go into some depth on that issue as well. Well, that's very complicated because a lot of the studies that they uh, came out with were sort of nonsense. They were these observational studies um, and they would look at sort of these poor kids and be like, oh, look, cannabis users have lower IQ. And then you'd read the limitations section of the study. And, you know, we didn't separate out cigarette, separate out cigarette smoke, alcohol, other drug use or poverty. I mean, kids who are poor do worse on IQ tests because they don't have privilege and education, the same educational opportunities. So there have been a lot of nonsense studies, which I think did a real disservice to everybody because it made the pro-cannabis people really skeptical of this whole notion. But, you know, where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And there are just so many studies showing uh, potential concerns to teenage brain development uh, with the use of cannabis. And, um, you know, the brain doesn't stop, uh, stop developing until age 25, but particularly before, between before age 16, before age 18, the endocannabinoid system is delicate, it's evolving, it's growing. And remember, using cannabis is like using these huge external doses, much higher doses than your endocannabinoid system. And similar to, we don't know what the effect is on the developing fetus, we just don't know the effect of using these large doses of external cannabinoids on the developing teenage brain. And there's enough concern that we don't recommend it. So I don't recommend it at all for teenagers, unless A, we're treating something like autism where there are no other good treatments. And it's hard to argue that the cannabis is more dangerous than the Adderall and the Haldol and the Thorazine we're bombarding these poor kids with. Or B, like they have cancer and they need it. Like my brother Danny is dying of cancer. Uh, why on earth would you deny him medicinal cannabis? So aside from those like particular conditions I or like refractory depression, uh, generally speaking, we say to teenagers, just say wait. And we try to get them ideally mm. to and not use it at least until they're 18 years old so that we don't have to be concerned about their brain development. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so cannabis and opioid or opioids or, op or replacement of opioids, et cetera. What's the truth about that? Well, 
there are five ways in which cannabis can help alleviate the opiate crisis, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm in addiction, a recovery from addiction for 15 years to prescription opiates. And I could have easily been one of these statistics. We've lost more than 100,000 people over the last 12 months to opiate overdoses. Um, so how can cannabis alleviate the opiate crisis? Number one, new chronic pain patients we treat with cannabis instead of opiates. Number two, legacy patients that are on huge doses of opiates might not need to be on these huge doses of opiates. We could offer to transition them from opiates to cannabis. Again, this has to be voluntary. I'm not a big proponent of kicking anybody off of opiates, but uh, I've had a lot of success getting people off opiates voluntarily. Number, If they're not on opiates, they're not going to overdose from opiates. Number three, if you use cannabis and opiates together, you can lower the dose of opiates that are used because they co-work on the same receptors. So therefore, um, you know, a lot of the mischief you get with opiates is dose related. If you could cut the dose down by 80%, that avoids a lot of the problems with opiates. Number four, cannabis is a great medication for uh, opiate withdrawal symptoms. I know this from treating thousands of patients. I also know this from personal experience and from the literature. And, and, and people on methadone or suboxone don't do worse when they use cannabis. Uh, and some studies show that they do better. And, you know, the withdrawal symptoms are what keep people on opiates. They're miserable. They're awful. And cannabis just happens to be very good at alleviating the withdrawal symptoms. So as an mm -hmm. adjunct to treating opiate use disorder, I think cannabis can be really, really effective. I don't approve of using cannabis in the same way that we use methadone and suboxone or buprenorphine. These are medications that are replacements for the opiates. Uh, and there's really good evidence that methadone and suboxone have a 50 to 80% reduction in overdoses and in death from overdoses. Now, while there certainly are thousands of people that have said, I use cannabis to get off opiates, we don't have the same data that cannabis substitutes for opiates as we do with methadone and suboxone and that it saves lives. So when I'm treating someone for opiate use disorder, which I'm very comfortable doing, having been in recovery from opiate addiction for 15 years, I use methadone, well, excuse me, I use suboxone or I would love to use methadone. We're not allowed to prescribe that for addiction, but I use suboxone and I often recommend cannabis as an adjunct, but not as a primary treatment for opiate use disorder. Excellent. Very clear. Thank you. Let's move on. Cannabis and sleep uh, forward slash insomnia. Very effective for sleep. Very difficult to argue that cannabis is more dangerous than the other medications we use for sleep, such as the Ambien's, the Trazodones, the Benzodiazepines. Um, we don't know for sure what cannabis does to the different phases of the sleep cycle or what the long-term effects of cannabis are in sleep. That's true for other sleep medications. Um, so we need to study it more. Um, we uh, need to do all the other things before we use cannabis for sleep. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to give someone cannabis for sleep if they're drinking 12 cups of coffee a day uh, or if they're um, not exercising and, you know, watching uh, very stimulating TV shows right before they go to bed. We try to get good sleep hygiene. So ideally, they don't even need a sleep medication. But among the sleep medications, I think cannabis is as effective and likely safer than many of the traditional pharmaceuticals. And it sort of boggles my mind that more doctors haven't um, embraced this because it's all about harm reduction and picking the least harmful alternative. And you know, why would you prescribe Ambien, which is implicated in car crashes, which is addictive, which uh, might contribute to dementia, when you could give someone a mostly CBD predominant tincture under their tongue and have them gently fall asleep with medicinal cannabis? I think that's a lot safer uh, than, than many of these pharmaceuticals. 
Excellent. Uh, yes, one question about uh, cannabis and sleep uh, longitudinally. Um, uh, Jamie Wheel, one of the contributors to the book that I mentioned earlier, uh, was uh, we were talking to him and because um, he's spoken at our conference and uh, he, he, you know, we, I don't know, cannabis came up and he said, you know, you might want to look into, he suggested getting an Oura ring, which you can measure your sleep patterns. And there's other things that do that as well. I now have an Apple watch that does certain similar things. And Jamie said there's, I don't know if he mentioned a study or a few studies, not a lot, that indicate that even though you think you're getting a better sleep, you may not be getting enough of, I think it's stage four, the deep sleep, and that that can have some long-term deleterious um, effects. Do you, do you know anything about that? And is there any research to support that? Well, we need more research and we're, we're still in our infancy about this because again, they were just trying to find harms. They weren't studying things like, can cannabis help your sleep and how does it affect your sleep stages? Um, the main effect that I'm aware of, and, and to a certain extent, my chapter on on cannabis and insomnia is called To Sleep But Not to Dream. Cannabis suppresses REM sleep, which is why A, cannabis users often don't report they don't remember their dreams as well as when they're not using cannabis. And B, one of the withdrawal effects, in addition, as we discussed earlier, to being grumpy, having a poor appetite, and having poor sleep is very, very vivid dreams because you're not suppressing your REM sleep. So you have to ask yourself, what is the long-term consequence of suppressing REM sleep? It, there might be none or it might be really bad. We just don't know. So this is exactly why we need more neutral, unbiased uh, research into the pros and cons of cannabis for all these medical conditions. Again, so we can maximize mm -hmm. harm and minimize, minimize benefit. Maximize benefit and minimize. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, today. <laughs> so. well, according to my Apple Watch and my um, Ura ring that I had for four or five years before I got this, uh, it's uh, the I don't. I'm not a daily cannabis user. Um, I, I I usually do use it twice a week, um, and one one of those times I'm mostly just meditating, and the other time I'm doing a sort of a semi meditation while playing music with a friend. Um, still, kind of a focused use that way. Um, and I check my sleep stats the next morning. And what I've observed as a pattern is that overall, my deep sleep minutes are down somewhat after a cannabis night, but not the REM sleep particularly. And I, and maybe it's, so maybe it's, maybe it's frequency of use because, um, because I don't, I still find I often have as many dreams those nights as other nights. It tends to be heavier users that, or nightly users that. The problem is like people don't like having insomnia. So once that's why we try not to start them on anything for sleep by maximizing the lifestyle interventions to sleep or using cognitive behavioral therapy. Because once you start using a sleeping med, you tend people tend to get stuck on it, whether that's Ambien or Valium or Trazodone or cannabis. Mm -hmm. A, the more you use, the more frequently you use any of these medications, the less well they work because you do get tolerance to them. So we try not to treat people with medications for sleep. But then it's just a question of if you have to treat someone, what's the least toxic alternative? And in my opinion, in many cases, I, I pick cannabis over Ambien or, or Valium or, or even Trazodone. Um, mm -hmm. in yeah. Um, by the way, on that note, in terms of um, actual method of intake or practice, um, I've got a couple of friends that uh, will who who have that problem with insomnia, and they will have a, a puff shortly before bed, but they will also take um, uh, like a, a capsule or a tincture or something 
that'll kick in an hour later and last a lot longer. Does that sound like a good prescription? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the problem with the puff, like if I were to take a puff before bed, I'd be so stimulated. I'd be like, all right, what am I, let's start writing my next book. It doesn't. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it does make them sleepy. Uh, you know, but when you inhale it, it lasts, it kicks in immediately. So that's an advantage if you have trouble falling asleep, but it only lasts for two to four hours. So that's a problem for people who have trouble staying asleep. If someone has trouble, no trouble falling asleep, like I consulted with someone last night who always falls asleep, but he wakes up in the middle of the night, then a puff wouldn't matter because you're falling asleep anyways and would wear off by the time you'd wake up in the middle of the night. And something like a tincture under the tongue or an edible is a more appropriate treatment uh, because it would last the whole eight hours that you're supposed to be sleeping. It wouldn't wear off. So it depends. You know, there are different flavors of insomnia. Some people have trouble initiating sleep. Others have trouble maintaining sleep. And as you allude to really critically, you know, depending on whether you smoke it, use a tincture or use a dryer vaporizer, a little safer, or um, use a tincture, use an edible, it, it takes longer to kick in and might last longer. That could be better or worse uh, for what type of sleep you're trying to alleviate. That's also true for chronic pain. You know, in the hospital, if someone has really severe chronic pain, we'll give them like long acting morphine to take the edge off and then immediate acting morphine to take away the spikes in pain. Uh, we do that for chronic pain with cannabis. Someone will take an edible to take the edge off and then they might take a sip from their dry herb vaporizer if they have a spike of their pain. So mm. we often use a combination of long acting and short acting to really best uh, alleviate the person's symptoms. Nice. Okay, here's a hot topic, um, cannabis and cancer. Well, he's going to say a hot topic as opposed to all the other topics. We've oh, yeah, right. Well, important because there's so much and cancer no, around, you know. Cannabis so, yeah. does not at this moment known to treat cancer in humans. There's very intriguing studies in cells and in some animals that it kills cancer cells. Yet I'm very much against using cannabis to treat cancer. If you have cancer and you want treatment, find an oncologist. We've gotten so much better at treating all types of cancer. When I was in medical school 25 years ago, if you had lung cancer, you'd be dead in one to five years. Now I have patients who have, lung, who have had lung cancer for 20 years. Uh, treat your cancer with an oncologist. Don't go for the Rick Simpson oil. There's no evidence whatsoever that that cures cancer. That said, people with cancer have miserable symptoms, pain, anxiety, insomnia, chemotherapy, just like my brother Danny. It really, really helped him when he was fighting his unsuccessful battle with leukemia, but it helped him maintain his weight. It helped him tolerate the chemotherapy and the pain. And he was down playing with his other, his younger brothers, i.e. me, or strumming his guitar rather than alone in his room barfing. I mean, cannabis can be transformative for the symptoms of cancer uh, and the symptoms of cancer treatment, which is why it's very hard to find an oncologist that's against medicinal cannabis, but it is not known yet to treat cancer. I wouldn't be surprised given how promising some of these cell and animal, not human, but cell and animal studies are if cannabis isn't used uh, in the future as part of our chemotherapy regimens or certain components of cannabis that are particularly good at killing cancer cells. But for right now, uh, you have an oncologist treat the disease of your cancer and you use cannabis liberally to treat the symptoms of your cancer and your cancer treatment and together they work really well together that's an excellent clarification thanks peter um so cannabis and autism that's an interesting one too when i wrote my chapter in cannabis and autism i thought that the claims had been exaggerated and there wasn't really much there but i became a lot more closer 
a lot closer to believing that cannabis really is going to be an important uh, treatment for autism. First of all, for the non-core symptoms, the self-injurious behavior, the hitting yourself, the disruptive behavior, the inability to kind of kind of get along with others in the room that unfortunately kids with autism can be afflicted with, we give patients Adderall, Thorazine, Haldol, all these heavy-duty neuroleptics, and there's increasingly important um and interesting evidence, both how and why cannabis works by improving oxytocin, oxytocin, you know, the, the hormone you get when you give a hug and for increasing your endocannabinoid tone, increasingly interesting evidence that cannabis may turn out to be a very important treatment for autism. And the, the stories the parents give are really, really compelling, sort of like the stories the parents gave um, with pediatric epilepsy. And, and, and then eventually the psychiatrist had to start believing them in the neurologist. And now there's an FDA approved medication, a Pelidex for using CBD for childhood epilepsy. I think uh, the sci psychiatrists have been way too dismissive of the claims of these parents and of the emerging research that cannabis can help with autism. Now, those are the non-core symptoms. There's even some evidence that the cruelest symptoms of autism, the core symptoms, the inability to connect with others or to feel empathy or to relate with people, even some of the studies have even hinted that cannabis can help with these, which is not surprising given my earlier answer, the cannabis is a mild psychedelic and really does help people connect and be mindful and have insight into their interactions with other people. So it wouldn't surprise me at all, but this just hasn't been looked into because we've been looking for harms, not for benefits. So I'm guardedly optimistic the cannabis like it did with pediatric epilepsy might in the next zero to 10 years uh, start to provide like a really radical and revolutionary improvement in our care for autism kids with autism yet we haven't quite gotten there to say that it definitively treats autism excellent thank you um <clears throat> i believe you have a chapter that says something titled something like cannabis and mental health uh, and I know you've addressed, uh, you know, some related issues regarding psychosis and schizophrenia in this uh, in this conversation. Um, but is there more you could say about that? For example, PTSD. Uh, it's real. It, you know, its effects with PTSD, um, well, or just anything else about mental health and cannabis. That chapter was called "Cannabis and Mental Health: Planet of the Shrinks," because mm. the psychiatrists are on a completely different planet than the medical cannabis users. Uh, the psychiatrist came out with a recent a paper in the American uh, Psychiatric Association Journal uh, saying that cannabis is not to, shouldn't be used in the treatment or alleviation of any mental health concerns mm. or conditions. Uh, we've talked about how it could destabilize people with psychosis, but very hard to find a veteran that doesn't believe that cannabis helps with their PTSD. And we don't have the evidence base because we've only been looking at the harms. But how can you just dismiss millions of veterans who are finding benefit? I've had patients... One patient that was on six shots of vodka twice a day, and now he takes a small puff of medicinal cannabis, and his liver's gotten better, his social life's gotten better, his agoraphobia's gotten better, he's going out, he's fishing with his buddies. Has this been transformative, the use of cannabis for his PTSD? Um, so you know, millions of people use it for anxiety and depression, and I just don't understand how the psychiatrist can just ignore that fact. You know, they could legitimately ask the question, what's happening to the anxiety and the depression over time? Certainly, it makes people feel better and helps alleviate the symptoms. Now, if you're treating anxiety and depression or even PTSD, half the battle is treating the symptoms and allowing people to have some kind of stability and happiness so they could go through their life. But you certainly don't want a treatment that's making them worse. Uh, I don't think it makes anxiety worse over time. There's some data that while it does make people feel better, it could 
make their depression somewhat worse over time. Yet that's exactly what the antidepressants do, the SSRIs. They don't uh, treat your depression. They treat the symptoms of the depression. And the depression can certainly progress over time. So I'm not quite sure why there's this double standard for cannabis versus the traditional psychiatric medications. I mean, the very cynical part of me states um, that, you know, the psychiatrist can charge, you have to pay them 450 bucks an hour to prescribe the SSRIs and the other medications. And with cannabis, people self-grow, they self-treat, you don't even need the psychiatrist. So, you know, there's the Upton Sinclair quote, where like, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him understanding the office. <laughs> I'm really wondering if some of these psychiatrists and pain doctors have this like subconscious bias against cannabis, because it allows the patients to treat their own conditions. Yet, I think it is a legitimate concern that we need to look at what happens to people's anxiety, depression, and PTSD over time. But again, I want to emphasize if we're restoring joy and functionality to people's lives, and we're treating the symptoms of these cruel and miserable diseases, that's half the battle. And they shouldn't be dismissive of the 94% of Americans that support legal access to medical cannabis. I mean, I personally think that the patient's are way ahead of the doctors and are way ahead of the psychiatrists on these issues. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Cannabis and ADHD. Right. We need to do more research. Uh, in my clinical experience, uh, in some people, cannabis makes the ADHD symptoms worse. And in others, it vastly alleviates it. Unfortunately, the psychiatrists don't know this because everybody's afraid to uh, tell their psychiatrist that they're using cannabis because the psychiatrist is so critical and dismissive. And further, the psychiatrists don't treat people with medical cannabis. So how would they know if it helps ADHD or doesn't help ADHD? They only address the train wrecks, the relatively rare but very tragic cases of when cannabis does trigger psychosis in a young adult or a teen. So they have a very biased opinion, just like an oncologist might have a very biased opinion in favor because it's so helpful to their patients. Um, but in my experience, I know people and I've treated people that they just take a very small dose and their their ADHD, it just vanishes They're like boom, 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 boom. Uh, oh. It's astounding. They don't even seem high. And I, I, I just spoke with other clinicians. They've seen this as well. And I spoke to so many people that said cannabis got me through college. I couldn't get my work done unless I used a small dose of cannabis. So mm. I think cannabis is one of these drugs that can have a biphasic reaction on ADHD and it makes some people better and some people worse. And I think it's really tragic that the psychiatrists haven't even considered the possibility or accepted the stories of all these people that are saying that it's helping them. And we've got to be open-minded. And, you know, as my father, a cannabis specialist said, uh, you know, in the absence of clear evidence, we have to do something very radical, which doctors have been doing for thousands of years, which is carefully and respectfully listen to our patients. And there's been a, a real lack of that um, with the psychiatrists and the cannabis patients. They just get a stern, dismissive lecture. The patient says, okay, I won't use cannabis. They continue using cannabis. They just don't tell their psychiatrist. And they find a medical cannabis doctor who's going to tell them what they want to hear, uh, which is more in line with their symptom alleviation. So we need to all come together around these issues. And that's part of why I wrote my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, so that we can come to some common ground and not just have these two different belief systems that don't oversect, intersect. That doesn't work for anybody. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so CBD, 
uh, it's so prevalent now. It's everywhere, uh, it seems. Um, uh, and uh, there could be many benefits to it, but also some potential problems. You mentioned the fact that it's unregulated, um, and so quality of material is a big issue. Can you talk about that a little, please? Yeah, you know, they were just, it's completely unregulated. And the FDA recently dropped the ball and said, we're not going to regulate CBD. It's too complicated. And, but it's available and it needs to be regulated. People do these studies where they take 100 CBD products off the shelf. Some of them have no CBD. Some of them have less than advertised. Some of them have more than advertised. And some of them have THC in it. Like the last thing you want is to get THC when you think you're getting CBD. You'll drive home and crash. You'll kill somebody. So we need to have this better regulated. The industry's done a fairly good job of regulating itself by getting independent laboratory testing, like random people, sort of like random drug tests, random product checks by these independent labs. So when you buy CBD, you should buy a product with a COA, a certificate of analysis, uh, which shows that there's been independent objective laboratory testing so that if it says you have 50 milligrams of CBD in the product, you're actually getting 50 milligrams of CBD in the product. So we get around it that way. I mean, the other things to worry about with CBD is that it works exactly like grapefruit juice. It can compete for your liver enzymes and consequently raise the level in your blood of other medications. This could be a big deal if these other medications have to be within a narrow therapeutic range, such as a blood thinner, an anti-epileptic, or uh, an immunosuppressant. So this goes back to what I've been harping on over and over and over again, is the most critical thing is open and free communication between doctors and patients. Patients have to feel non-judged, non-criticized. Doctors have to be open-minded and much better educated about all of this stuff so they could have helpful, informative discussions with patients. But, you know, it's not a big deal if a patient starts CBD or cannabis for that matter. It's a big deal if they start CBD and their primary care doctor or their anesthesiologist or their oncologist doesn't know about it because they're embarrassed or afraid to mention it. Mm -hmm. Then there's not open communication. The doctor can't check the level of the blood thinner with the CBD on board and can't advise the patient about how to use it safely and sensibly. Are there, um, is there uh, solid or reliable research about particular benefits of just CBD without THC or with the sort of 0.3% THC that's common? Increasingly, um, many of the studies of CBD have been done on animals, not humans, because of the war on drugs. And many people are studying CBD now. So we're going to have more answers, uh, not, you know, not 10 years from now, but in the next year or two. There are a lot of really good studies that are being done, but there's good evidence that it helps with chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety. There's increasing evidence that it helps with all kinds of addictive disorders, which is really interesting. Heroin, tobacco, uh, amphetamines. Um, some of these studies are animal studies, but some of them are human studies. And it, it's an FDA, CBD is an FDA approved medication for intractable childhood epilepsy syndrome. So there's excellent data about that. But CBD, it's a work in progress. Uh, a lot of the doses we use are very low, which is part of the reason why it doesn't always work for people. In the animal study, they studied 20 to milligrams per kilogram, which in a humans would be like a, in the range of like a thousand milligrams. Now we take a gummy that's 30 milligrams and it's not even absorbed that well orally. So we absorb 10% of that. We're getting like three milligrams instead of a thousand milligrams. So we're vastly underdosing uh, the CBD that we're taking in part because it's so expensive and in part because people don't know. So I think we need to 
actually, you know, take bigger quantities of CBD to have a better effect. And I'm very eager following uh, the research. And I think we're going to have better and better research on the benefits uh, of CBD that people, so many people are reporting. Yeah. Well, that cost issue is a huge one in that regard, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to get, uh, read you a quote from the book. CBD partially inhibits the binding of THC onto cannabinoid receptors. What's the f- effect of that? Well, CBD is what's known as a promiscuous molecule. It works with dozens of different receptors. Ironically, even though it's a cannabinoid, uh, the receptors it doesn't react with very much at all are the cannabinoid receptors. You know, it works on the capsaicin receptors, which is how it helps with pain. And it works on the serotonin receptors, which is how it helps with anxiety and, and mood. But it works on the cannabinoid receptors by changing their structural their structure, their their uh, molecular conformation. So it actually makes THC bind less uh, tightly to the cannabinoid receptor. So it's thought that, T- T- that CBD can help modify or modulate some of the negative aspects of, of THC. For example, as we talked about earlier, CBD, uh, THC can interfere with the consolidation of memories. It's thought that CBD, which is neuroprotective and which makes the THC bind less tightly to the cannabinoid receptor might mitigate some of the memory, short-term memory effects of the THC. Um, at the same time, THC and CBD do work together very well synergistically in terms of helping with pain, anxiety, and insomnia. Uh, that might be because the CBD can raise the level of the THC, or it could be that it it helps modulate some of the negative effects of THC so that people can enjoy more of the positive effects. This is something we're still learning a lot more about, but Often I find that CBD helps people, but you add a little bit of THC in and it works a lot better. Yeah, I've heard about that too. Even one-to-one sometimes, I think as people are reporting good good effects from that. Um, so one thing I'm curious about in that regard is, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, uh, you've just made it clear that CBD has some interesting balancing effects when combined with THC. Uh, what about later? Like, let's say you've smoked uh, you know, a very strong THC containing uh, cultivar, and you, you'd like you'd like to diminish that at some point. Can CBD help with that later? A lot of people claim it can, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. And there's a theoretical basis for it helping uh, if someone gets too high using CBD to bring them down, which is just what we mentioned. Uh, CBD makes THC bind less tightly to the cannabinoid receptor and have less of an effect. So it's thought that CBD can help mitigate several of the negative effects of THC, including the I'm way too high and having an anxiety attack. Yeah, uh, that one. I certainly recommend people have CBD on board, or I think it's much safer to use THC with CBD because it does mitigate many of the negative effects. The data, though, in in all honesty, is a little bit mixed. Because CBD interferes with the liver enzymes, it can actually temporarily raise the level of the THC in your blood, and that could hypothetically make the anxiety or the CBD or the THC overconsumption worse. So the jury's still out, but I'm generally a believer that CBD is something that should be tried if someone's like had way too much THC by accident and are freaking out. I would definitely give them some CBD. Excellent. I even carry it around with me like I carry uh, naloxone, Narcan around with me in case I'm stuck on a plane and somebody's having an overdose. I never want to get caught without Narcan so that I can save their lives. 
I also often carry CBD around with me so that if someone like this happens all the time, take an edible for the flight and then they take way too much and they're like, holy shit, I'm on an airplane and I'm freaking out. Um, it's great to have some CBD to try because not only might it lower the effects of the THC, but in and of itself, it's intrinsically calming. Mm, I like that prescription, doctor. Um, okay, here's another quote. Uh, CBD can raise the concentration in the blood of other medications. That sounds a little um, scary, so to speak. What's the deal on that? Well, we, we hit on that a little bit earlier because it acts like grapefruit juice and it competes for the liver enzymes. Consequently, mm. the liver enzymes are not available to metabolize and clean the blood of these other medications. So again, if it, you just take a, you know, a, a medication for heartburn, a Zantac, and you could take 10 or 20, you take 10 milligrams, and you take a little CBD, so it's more like 11 milligrams. It's sort of an educated guess how much we're giving you anyways, and it's not a toxic medication. That's not a big deal. If it's a medication that needs to be within a narrow therapeutic range, like an anti-epileptic, a blood thinner, an immunosuppressant, taking the CBD can knock it out of the therapeutic range. So again, this it's not a problem if there's good communication between doctor and patient and the doctor can check the levels of the blood thinner knowing that the patient started CBD. So that is a potential harm of CBD, yet I think it's very uh, deal-withable uh, with good doctor-patient communication. Excellent. Okay, um, I'm kind of amazed that we've gotten through all this as quickly as we had. You've been extremely disciplined about giving succinct answers. Thank you very much for that. Um, so I actually have one more question. <clears throat> excuse me, and it's um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me uh, on page 254. There are about um, 15 or 20. Uh, recommendations or suggestions for cannabis consumers. Could you summarize to the best of your recollection, say the most important ones of those? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we could use cannabis m more or less safely. And again, we at the end of the day, we want to maximize our benefits and minimize harms, regardless of whether they're using it uh, to magnify our enjoyment of our lifestyle, our, our enjoyment of music, art, sex, creativity, interpersonal connection, personal insight whether we're using it for uh, you know, chronic pain or insomnia or whatever medicinal use, or whether we're just trying to avoid the harms that we should all agree on, like pregnancy and breastfeeding and teenage use and driving. And you, know, you wanna keep the doses low. Uh, you don't wanna smoke it because uh, that's bad for your lungs. So we talked earlier, dry herb vaporizer is much safer than smoking cannabis because you don't combust it. You only heat it up to the level that you need to extract the cannabinoids and you don't get the combustion products. Um, you know, in high school, we used to be like, hold it in for like 10 minutes after mm. each puff. And like studies have shown that, um, you know, if you hold it in for a second or two, you absorb just as much and you're just hurting your lungs by holding it in more. Um, you know, set and setting is really important as is the dose. I mean, I don't think people have to have these experiences where they take way too much and freak out and have a panic attack. If you just start low, go slow, be careful with the edibles. Uh, you know, communicate with your doctor. The open communication can avoid many, many problems. The other side of that is educating doctors so they can actually uh, have the, the helpful participant in the conversation when uh, you're communicating with them as opposed to shutting down the conversation. So there are many, many ways to use cannabis safely. And there are many tricks or suggestions I use in the book to make it a lot safer. 
Well, you know, we've, as I mentioned a moment ago, we got through this material so um, uh, efficiently that um, I wasn't going to ask about this one because it's not addressed directly in the book. It's not part of the mission of the book. But my, my niche on all this is cannabis as a spiritual ally. You've mentioned it very briefly once or twice. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, at least historical or anecdotal anecdotal type evidence that that uh, uh, cannabis as a perhaps you might refer to it on one level as a, a neutral or, or non-specific amplifier as they refer to other psychedelics sometimes um, uh, it has been used by say the sadhus of India for thousands of years etc etc um, have you ever heard of the um, uh, uh, Indian Hemp Drugs Commission report of 1893-94. Yeah, there's an appendix in there by J.M. Campbell, where he 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 has these what I consider rather astounding uh, quotes about the effects of. Um, I think we're talking about high dose oral use of cannabis um, uh, that um, you know that like leaving the weary round of matter behind and communing with the divine and all that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Just to kind of finish up here. Absolutely. I have a lot of thoughts on it. Uh, you have to remember, I've been using cannabis since age 13, uh, not mm -hmm. continuously. Um, and I, 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 what I think in some ways is the most interesting chapter in my book is the chapter on lifestyle enhancement and benefits. This is not the medicinal harms. This is not the medicinal benefits. This is the ways in which people have, are, and continue to use cannabis to improve their appreciation of spirituality, to to ignite their creativity, to help connect with other people, to appreciate art, music, sexuality, the things that make us human or the things that make being human so meaningful and important, the things that make it great to be alive. And I talk a lot about my personal use and the ways it's helped me in the past with like insight and creativity and just feeling that sense of awe and wonder in the world out in nature. And again, cannabis is a psychedelic and it's really astounding how with cannabis, the psychiatrists have been like, oh golly, that's illegal. Don't use that for the last 50 years. And with psychedelics, they're like, hey man, you know, who cares about the man? Let's uh, drop some acid and do some therapy. There's been such a double standard. And I go through about seven different theories about well, why most psychiatrists have accepted cannabis readily, but uh, have just re accepted psychedelics readily, but have rejected uh, cannabis. And it's really unfortunate because I fully agree with you. And again, this has been heretical for doctors to talk about in the past, which has done a huge disservice to patients across the world, across time. But cannabis can help people with insight, creativity, and spirituality in many of the same ways as psychedelics can, which is sort of an artificial dichotomy because cannabis is a psychedelic. And this has been vastly underutilized because of the war on drugs and the persecution of cannabis users, instead of helping these people utilize this medicine in ways that enhance their lifestyle and enhance their health, we've arrested 20 million people over the last 50 years simply for cannabis possession. To arrest someone is to ruin or vastly diminish their educational opportunities, their employment opportunities, their housing opportunities. So we've been harming people when we should be helping people with cannabis. And that's a lot, a big reason of why, why I've written this book. I mean, in some ways it's meant as, even though he's sort of a hard act to follow, a trilogy following my dad's first two books. In 1971, he wrote Marijuana Reconsidered, calling for legalization and calling out 
the harms and speaking to the benefits. And the second book was Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine, which was a roadmap to patients and doctors alike in 1993, um, which presaged the legalization of medical cannabis in 1996. It gave a lot of, both of his books gave a lot of ammunition and intellectual firepower to the legalization movement. But my dad, unfortunately, hasn't written a book for about uh, 40 years. So I thought it was time to update 30 years, uh, to update the record. So I use all the latest science. I reconsider, revisit many of these issues. And I say, where do we stand now from the point of view of science on the harms and the benefits, including the spiritual, religious, and creativity benefits. These are all part of being human, and cannabis has been with us since the very beginning of our human journey, and there's no reason to pathologize people. We should work with people, again, to maximize benefits and minimize harms. Beautiful summary. Thanks a lot. I think that's a, a great place to end. Um, uh, I want to say again to people watching or listening to this that um, you can count on this book. I swear up and down. This is reliable, trustworthy information. Uh, uh, Dr. Grinspoon has uh, dug deep into the studies and shown which ones you can trust and which ones you can't. And he's taken, as you've noted in this interview, I'm sure, a very balanced and even careful approach without enforcing any kind of agenda that's not supportable by evidence. So the book, again, is called um, Seeing Through the Smoke. A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. And as I said at the outset, um, this is uh, the the um, non-pari um, example of truth in advertising. This is exactly what this book does. And, uh, you know, the term must read, <clears throat> a must read book, it tends to be a little bit shop worn now. But I believe this is absolutely a must read book for people working in all the different kinds of professions that have any way to influence the, the forward progress of the way that we deal with cannabis. So, um, oh, Peter, um, is there any uh, particular link or anything you'd like to take people to check out to, um, to uh, look further into any of this? Well, my website is really fun. It has events, virtual and real. It has a ton about the book. It has how you can get the book. And it has a lot of media clips and videos. So my website is very simply uh, www.petergrinspoon.com. And again, Grinspoon is grin like smile, spoon like fork. So it's just <laughs> www.petergrinspoon.com. And you could get the book. You can uh, I, I consult. I treat cannabis use disorder. I addiction. I treat um, people for everything uh, medicinally with cannabis. And I also advise on lifestyle uses. So I consult. And, and and the book itself is on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's in bookstores. Everywhere where books can be found, you should be able to find Seeing Through the Smoke. And I, I just want to thank you, Stephen, for such uh, well-prepared, thoughtful, and interesting discussion. It's really been a pleasure. Well, th you're welcome. And, uh, you know, I, as I said a, a little while back there, uh, um, you did an, a masterful job of um, summarizing and keep and keeping things moving too. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, uh, so um, we'll, I'm going to stop the recording in a second. Could I get you to hang around just for a couple of minutes for a quick post game? Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Grinspoon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.